This is Tracing Architecture, and I'm one of your hosts, Sean Swisher. This is our final special episode for the 2021 AIA Arizona State Conference, and we have some great conversations lined up to lead us into the conference later this week. If you haven't listened to our first two special episodes, New in Town and In a Different Light, we recommend giving them a listen prior to this Friday. We've tried to provide some good context that we feel enriches the conversations you'll be hearing during the conference. You can find them on our website, tracingarchitecture.org, or wherever you're listening to this one. So, on to the show. As you probably know by now, the theme for this year's conference is Together, which at its heart is the sense of community we've all been longing for these past 20 months. And for today, we've got our final three local design community members leading conversations with speakers at the conference, all of whom share this passion for creating that feeling of community. Today's episode is titled All Together Now, and we'll hear from Diane Jacobs, FAIA, Damon Leverett, AIA, and Rob Miller, AIA, as they speak about their approaches to building communities through architecture, mentorship, leadership, and communication. First, we'll hear from Diane Jacobs, founder and principal of Holly Street Studio. Born in New York and raised in Puerto Rico, Diane went to the University of Arizona before practicing in Boston and Phoenix. Her studio's work is celebrated for its focus on community-based design, a common thread throughout many of their clients and projects. And earlier this year, Diane was elevated to the College of Fellows at the AIA. Diane will be speaking with Marsha Madem, FAIA, of Letty Madem Stacy Architects in San Francisco at this year's conference, and we talked about some of the common values and experiences they share. I sat down with Diane at her studio's office on Central Avenue in Phoenix, where she had just returned from a trip to her childhood home of Puerto Rico. Diane, thank you so much for sitting down with us today with Tracing Architecture. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Just to get us started off, at this year's conference, you're going to be speaking with Marsha Madem, one of the founding principals of Letty Madem Stacy Architects in San Francisco. And when I look at the work of LMS and your office, Holly Street Studio, there seems to be so much in common, but most specifically an emphasis on social responsibility and community impact through architecture. So can you talk about how you have made this a central part of your studio's design ethos and maybe how you feel like that connects with LMS's work? Well, first of all, I'm so excited to speak with Marsha Madem in person and have these opportunities to speak with her informally kind of ahead of the event. Marsha has been somebody that I've admired for quite some time, and I've been a huge fan of their collective work for many, many years. So even to be kind of on stage or in the same sort of bucket with them for this conversation is is a real honor. I would say that the ethos of Holly Street Studio, which aspires to, to do work much like what LMS has been doing in San Francisco and other locations, is not something that's necessarily conscious. I do believe very strongly in the idea of architecture as a profession, in the sense that we profess through our work to contribute to society, contribute to the world and to the planet in ways that we think make things better and in ways that we think have the greatest impact. The work that we do is in response to real problems and hopefully provide solutions for things that we think are in great need of a level of thinking beyond just providing spaces and brick and mortar kind of offerings. So in terms of the ethos of the practice, I think it's because we believe that the work we do is at the beginning and at the end very much a human endeavor. The architecture then responds in kind and then becomes hopefully a vehicle for making positive change for those that use it. I think that's another point I wanted to touch on regarding community-based design. 
you know, another connection between Marsha and yourself in that same vein is your firm's commitment to sustainability and adaptive reuse. And you talked about this exact topic at the AIA National Conference in 2019 and how adaptive reuse can be part of building a community identity. That speaks to this year's theme of the conference of together. What are some examples from your work or or LMS that you believe best represent the power of these ideas? Well, I know that we talked earlier, Sean, about our project in Central Phoenix, the Parsons Center for Health and Wellness, which um, whose major tenant is Southwest Center for HIV AIDS. I think what's interesting about that project, and you could label it sustainable, I don't know, I think solutions need to be holistic and sustainability is definitely something that is very critical right now and frankly has been critical since you know we started putting dwellings together as human beings. I will say that one theme or one kind of idea under the umbrella of sustainability is resourcefulness. Sustainability has so much to do with the management and kind of the care and understanding of resources. The thing about adaptive reuse is that it is a strategy that embraces the notion of abundance in terms of available resources. And by that, I mean, we do focus a lot on scarcity and on minimizing resources that are either readily or not readily available, but that are new. One of the things that we can do to embrace and sort of honor the limited material bank, if you will, of our planet is to look around, understand that our cities are in many ways pre-existing fabrics of a variety of buildings that have been embraced by activity, by community, by time, and use those to create new spaces, but that are also a continuation of existing stories and ideas. So that's a a long-winded way of saying we are in a planet of great abundance, but we're also in a condition of great scarcity. So balancing these two together seems like the most responsible and ultimately the most beautiful solution that also ties directly in with the community in which they are already pre-existing. So I don't think when we make a building that we are telling a story or conveying a narrative. I think we're part of a continuum. And when we bring an existing structure into a new life, you're also bringing that energy and that hope uh, along with it, which really changes not just the quality of the space, but the quality of the experience. Just like you, Marsha also chose to start her firm alongside her husband, Bill Weddy. And I'm curious for you and, and Michael Jacobs, your partner, what's it like to lead an award-winning studio with your spouse? And how have you and Michael been able to maintain the balance between running the office and having a family? Well, as we talked about earlier, I'd say the jury's still out. (laughs) People do talk about this concept of emerging professionals. I think of myself as as an emerging professional now 30 years into it, and I would say, you know, as far as a marriage and a partnership goes, also pretty much 30 years into it, we're emerging as a partnership. But I will say that a lot of what happens with life partners who choose or who end up 
being professional partners is that it's rarely a conscious decision. My sense is that if you are committed to living a life dedicated to an ideal of some kind, which is larger than a job, generally speaking, you will gravitate toward those who have similar ideals. And if the relationship is such that you are friends and lovers and partners in many different ways, you are also going to be a good team. And as we know, we cannot do the work that we do as architects without being part of a good team. So although there are days where it can be pretty maddening because it's very um, intense to have this at home and at work, it is actually, for me, sharing this journey in life and in work is a way to become the best possible architect and person that I could be. So I've enjoyed working with Michael. He's a brilliant architect. We are both design leads. We are not a partnership where one person specializes in another thing. We touch everything and we have raised this firm very much like we've raised our family. And so in general, I think that the reason why these things work is you're an all-in kind of person and your work and your life is blurry anyway, so you might as well do this sort of thing with someone that you trust and that you love and that has your back. Now, having said that, it's really hard sometimes. And there are days when you have to come back to these ideals and they happen pretty often. So I don't want anybody to think that it doesn't take some work, but I will say moving forward, whether you're engaged in your work with a life partner or not, the people that you work with should be sort of the beginning and the end of everything because the best work comes about from diverse ideas, diverse relationships, and creative tension. So you have to take the good with the bad. Earlier this year, you were elevated to the College of Fellows in the AIA. And looking over your architecture career leading up to receiving this honor, what are you most proud of? And what do you hope to achieve in the next chapter of your career? I think for anybody that's gone through the fellowship process, uh, you realize that this is an incredible and painstaking opportunity to really observe your life and observe Um, the things that you've been able to contribute and the things where you've maybe fallen short. The beginning of this journey for me started with a phone call from an esteemed colleague and now mentor of mine, Ed Soltero, who is a fellow himself in a position as an architect of uh, a position of leadership as an architect. And I do think we share a common experience coming from Latino backgrounds. I was raised in Puerto Rico, and although I wasn't born there, I pretty much um, became who I am in a place like that. And Ed shares a lot of his Spanish roots as a person and as an architect and was very passionate and very powerful in his directing me to dig deep and really understand what it means to be an architect in order to put this submittal together. I was elevated uh, through the object two, which is the practice object. And I know a lot of architects 
really focus their efforts or their identity on the idea of design. What was great about submitting under that object was that I was asked to talk about a well-rounded sort of holistic contributions. And I realized through that process all the things that I've been able to touch as an architect, including teaching uh, very, very young preschool-age students how to sketch and create space all the way up through graduate school. So teaching was one piece of it. Leading the Institute through the Women's Leadership Group and National AIA Endeavors and uh, work with NOMA and other organizations and rounding that up with contributing to my community as an architect through community-centric design with kind of a focus on social responsibility. So when I stood back and, of course, hadn't seen any result yet and saw what I'd been able to accomplish, whether elevation would happen, which once it did, it does feel pretty great. I realized that my goal as an architect goes well beyond the drawing board, and I was pretty proud of that. So that was cool. What I want to do with that added little letter to my um, my initials and my name, uh, now that maybe I have a little bit extra street cred, I, I don't know if that's the case, but I'm told that once in a while, is provide access to others to enter and thrive into this practice. I think there are unnecessary obstacles to being able to do good work. Rigor is not an unnecessary obstacle. It's crucial that you put in your time and your effort and do your homework and try hard and fail and try hard again. But at the same time, there are moments where there are barriers created for young architects, including ability to run a practice, ability to go through regulatory challenges, ability to connect with clients that are um, 100% unnecessary. So I would like to, through my practice and through this new honor, provide access for young architects to do better work, to connect with communities in a way that's more meaningful, and in turn gain access to themselves. Because if you have that, then you're able to be part of the broader solution. And what we need from people now more than ever is that. Congratulations on earning your F this year, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Sean. It's been fun. Next up is Damon Leverett, an architect, artist, and senior lecturer at the College of Architecture, Planning, and Landscape Architecture at the University of Arizona. Before coming to Arizona, Damon also worked at the National Office of the American Institute of Architects as a Managing Director of Workforce Development and Strategy, as well as practicing at the offices of Albert Kahn Associates, Smith Group, and EYP. Damon will be speaking with Mark Gardner at this year's conference, who's the principal at New York City-based Jacklich Gardner Architects and assistant professor of architectural practice and society at Parsons. Mark and Damon are both educators and mentors, and they have both worked to create projects that have broad community impact. Damon and I met down in Tucson at Kapla to talk about the ways he and Mark overlap, his work to design large projects with lasting community impact, and about his time at the National AIA office. Damon, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me. I want to start off and and just talk to you about your role at AIA. Before you came to Kapla, you were at the National Office in Washington, D.C., and you focused on engaging membership in various areas, including equity, diversity, and inclusion. What was your experience like at the National Office, and how did you work to address equity in architecture through this role? And then also, what other aspects of the industry did you focus on while at the AIA? Oh, great question. You know, firstly, I think that my my work there was was immensely important, and it was personally satisfying. 
to work on the many projects there with uh, 200 really talented people in Washington, D.C. Uh, There's really about four things I worked on. One was uh, equity, diversity, inclusion, but also academic engagement, which was really important in trying to pull together uh, great minds in architecture with the academy and foster collaboration. Uh, also, I was interested in working with young people, so we developed a new K-12 through program, uh, which sought to work with components and chapters around the country and supporting their efforts in developing pipelines and helping children understand architecture, not because they will all be architects, but because architecture is part of our lives and that uh, the knowledge of it is important in any path they choose. Uh, and then the biggest actually department I was actually involved in is actually emerging professionals, and that included the National Associates Committee, the NAC, and also the YAF, uh, the Young Architects Forum. So I spent a lot of time with my staff, who had an amazing staff of people who you know worked weekends and helped uh, put together events, uh, certain events such as the Women's Leadership Summit, which is probably now about the third or fourth largest conference that the AI conducts from our group, and I think that that represented some amazing accomplishments we've had there. So a lot of it is really uh, working in a nonprofit membership association and trying to support the architecture profession in, in the ways that we, we could, but also to respond and listen to our members and try to provide the programs and conduct business in a way that is supportive of their practice. You know, before you joined the AIA, before and after, you also had a professional career that spanned several decades. And I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about your career, especially because you're going to be interviewing uh, at this year's conference, Mark Gardner, who's a principal at the New York City-based Jack Litch Gardner Architects, and he's also an assistant professor of architectural practice and society at Parsons. A lot of Mark's work has focused on community-based design, and I'm curious what your thoughts are about that, as well as maybe some ideas from your, your own career about the work you've done and maybe even those that have focused on community-based design. Yeah, thanks for asking that. I uh, worked in nonprofit world for a while, but it only represented about 5% of my career, so I've been working in firms uh, most of my life and, and really working in larger firms like Albert Kahn and Smith Group and EYP. I, I think keeping in mind also that I'm, I'm originally from Detroit. I've, I've been out of Detroit now for 20 years and I've spent about a third of that time in or more than a third of that time here in Arizona. So I've been here in Washington, D.C. and, and uh, also in Illinois for a, a little bit. You know, I've definitely worked hard during my career to be engaged in both big planning efforts uh, with cities and also working with community groups. I worked on a, a very large elementary school bond project, a multi-building bond project in East Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, in projects like that where this sort of, um, you know, we use the word community-based design, but it, it's, it really encompasses so many things about listening to the community and incorporating both their knowledge, their expertise, and their wisdom and helping uh, form new policies and new design ideas that will benefit them and uh, also grow, hopefully, their, their economies and their, you know, essentially their community status and so forth. So I think that, you know, that was some of the best work I've, I've done. And I think on the other side of that, as far as community, uh, I, I've done quite a bit of local 
sort of healthcare projects. And that might sound like a very institutional thing to work on, but in reality, I felt really good about working on small clinics inside of uh, Detroit that would benefit, again, neighborhoods where people really are. You know, everything in the city is not downtown. You know, it's not where the big buildings are. It's where the people live. And when you get involved in, in doing healthcare projects like that, it really makes a big difference in a community. It provides jobs, really good paying jobs, uh, provides better standard of living because of the healthcare that's being available to them in a more local basis. And then other, the other part of that is, of course, K through 12 schools, which, as all architects know, is, cannot be done without community engagement. It's sort of like the two words go hand in hand. So you really spent a lot of time with uh, school boards and small group meetings. And, and I just found over the years just to be really rewarding and also very satisfying in terms of, of um, understanding what my experience of, of growing up in public schools in a big city and how I was able to come back and contribute to that. I, I think one of the projects I was really happy to work on is the Performing Arts High School with uh, Rainey Hamilton's office in Detroit. And uh, it really provided an amazing uh, musical and performing arts educational venue for extremely talented people in that, in that city. And uh, it was just really a pleasure working on that. And those are the kind of projects I remember the most. Anything else you feel like you want to share about you or, or maybe your thoughts about Mark's work? I think the thing, and I actually talked to Mark quite a bit a couple of weeks ago. I've met Mark before. I've been to New York when my work with the AI, I actually visited AI in New York, and that's when I, when I probably first met him and uh, did a presentation there on diversity and inclusion. And I met some of the other New York architects, which are just an amazing group of people. But the thing that attracted me to Mark was his work. Mark is a really serious, seriously good architect in a lot of ways. And I was I was inspired by that. You know, Marcus is a person who has responded like myself in the last year and a half in our conversations in this country about diversity and, and equity. And, you know, Mark is a seriously good architect. And that's really is driving a lot of the questions I have for him. And the reason for that, there's a reason for that, actually, because I'm interested in sharing the stories of particularly black architects who are accomplished into sharing their methodologies, theories, and ideas so that the young people who are listening to that can hear that. You know, well, how did you, you know, you did this thing in Tanzania. So did you go there? Did you, you know, who'd you meet when you, you know, we need to hear the whole story. And that's what's really got me so jazzed about being privileged enough, actually, to, to ask him a few questions. And I, I want to share that. I, I think also, finally, I would say that, you know, there are people like Mark who are soul practitioners, but there are also hundreds of other African-Americans who are working in big companies, and they actually have made tremendous contributions to the profession, and they're kind of unsung heroes. But I've been seeking them out in a couple of things I've been doing. I was chair for a design jury, so I went and tried to find people who people don't know them, but when you look at their work, they are doing amazing types of things for large organizations, and uh, their contribution to the profession is enormous. 
I also want to talk about your academic career because you now teach at the College of Architecture, Planning, and Landscape Architecture at the University of Arizona, as we mentioned before. But prior to joining the AIA, you were a lecturer at Lawrence Technical University, uh, as well as the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Now, I wanted to ask you, what, what drove you to teaching originally and what brought you back after a few years away? And what made you make the decision to, to leave the East Coast and leave uh, the middle of the country and, and come this way to Arizona? Wow, that's really going back a while. So a lot of people don't know this, but how, do I, how did I get into teaching really is because I had this great love for computer science. I actually, when I left college, I actually applied to a couple of local universities to pursue that as for no other reason other than the fact that I was really interested in it and was really not bad at it. But eventually what happened was uh, the university, Lawrence Tech, knew that I had uh, some skill in that and, and some knowledge to share, and I became a lecturer right away in, in the early 90s to teach computer graphics for architects, and that's what we called it then. <laughs> That was really the beginning, and then that led to design classes and theory classes, and you know, I became a mainstay there for almost 10 years, teaching at least one course every year for 10 years, and that kind of started my sort of part-time version of that. At this point in my career, I like to think of it as chapter two, really. It's not like I'm near retirement or anything like that. It's just an opportunity for me to explore lots of different things, and I've put my sort of professional business career on hold for a while while I pursued this teaching more full-time, actually I am full-time now. And uh, it's just been an immense experience working with young people. And I realize now that I've been doing it here in Arizona for almost three years, maybe I should have been doing more of this. But I, I truly believe in, in young people. This is an unprecedented part of, of history, really. And there are so many things that are, uh, you know, the technology, the, the internet, the, you know, just there's so many things that are, are really blossoming. And this generation is going to have a tremendous amount of opportunity to engage in architecture in, in lots of different ways. And the kind of building types that are going to be needed in the future are going to be different. And it is sort of a moment to give back. You know, that's how I feel, really. I'm just, I feel lucky that I can do that. And so I'm doing as much as I can. Uh, and I, I want to help students to be confident and competent. I want them to be proud of their abilities. I want them to, to hold their heads up high and take a, a big step forward, raise your hand when asked, and to engage, embrace architecture as powerfully as possible and to use the goal of to excel as being your primary direction and design excellence and building excellence as being the, the most primary thing that they should really focus on in engaging this because it really takes architecture as a really complicated and yet beautiful art. And it takes a lot of study. It takes a lot of commitment. And that's a really big word. It takes a lot of commitment. And it also is one that is conducive to passion, which I think architects are not short on that. I would say go for it, and I've, I've had 15 students right now, and I, I told them when class started that I always treat my class like a small boat of 15, 16 people trying to cross a river. We all got in on one side, and we're all going to successfully get off on the other side, and that's the way we work together. We work together, actually, in our class, and we help each other, we critique each other, 
and I want them all to succeed. And so that's that's what's really driving me. I'm not sure. I, I do have a mother who was a teacher, so I must have been influenced a little bit by that. I did, should probably mention that my mother was an amazing teacher, a first grade teacher, actually. And uh, it's certainly something that uh, I'm, I'm glad to be doing. You and Mark both share, you know, this passion for teaching, especially alongside a professional practice, but also mentorship of students. Mark's spoken extensively about how he sees his role as a mentor. And I'm curious about your thoughts about mentorship of students specifically. And I also want to try and tie that to some of your earlier roles at AIA and uh, the NAAB about the things that we're seeing in trends for demographics and students and then in professional practice and, and what you see your role as or thoughts you have about mentorship with regard to that. Well, that's kind of a hard one, but I think that I've looked at mentorship. We've discussed actually having mentorships in my work at the AIA, and we had some pretty good conversations. And one thing you have to understand about mentorship is that there's, you know, it's the word mentorship, and then there's the action mentorship. It's it sometimes gets confused, and, and really, there are actually mentorship programs and actually software, you know, that helps drive a system of a group of people, but it requires intense compliance and schedules and things like that. You know, what I want to really say is that, you know, mentorship is really personal. You know, it's, it requires spending time. So when you say you're going to mentor someone, we should count on spending lots of time with them. And, and that's the hard part. And sometimes it's the commitment that is really needed to make that flourish. So I teach here but I also make myself available to be mentored, particularly to some minority students who want that. And my door has been open to them. But I have to tell you that it, it requires a commitment from both of them. It means my door is always open. My phone, I always answer their calls. I answer the emails and their Zooms. And we meet on Saturdays. We meet on at 9 o'clock during the week on Zoom. You know, we, you know it takes a lot of effort because students have a lot of questions, a lot of questions. And it takes time to do that. And so I would say I would be just as happy in the world if there were just, you know, a thousand people who were super motivated and passionate about mentoring who were willing to spend two hours a week doing it, even just that much, uh, two to five hours a week doing mentoring and what that kind of commitment would do for a change for so many young people than, say, like a structured mentoring program, you know, so... I really think it's more of a personal level and uh, developing relationships with people. And then, and then finally, uh, the important thing is following up. You know, it takes time to follow up with people uh, even after they even left their sphere. So I've, I've been blessed with a really great uh, mentor in my own life who I had as a freshman instructor in college and then became friends with after I left college and was became a lifetime friendship and mentorship for like 30 years. So that's a real relationship, you know, where we ended up doing competitions together and we were also judging being juries for other things and we were teaching together, we actually teach together once eventually. But again, she met me when I was 18 years old when I didn't know anything. You know, that's, it doesn't say that all mentoring has to be that way. I'm just trying to illustrate that it, it just takes a lot of commitment and it takes a personal connection in order to make uh, mentorship work. And I guess what are your thoughts following up to that about things that can be done 
with students today to help make sure that they are, you know, matriculating through the architecture industry, that they are coming up through and entering into the professional world and not fall into the wayside. Part of what you're talking about, I guess, is, is that there's an underrepresentation of minorities in, in the profession, and particularly African-Americans. I really feel that, having studied this both at the AI and being concerned myself since as long as I can remember, even, even when I was eight years old, I remember reading a book about, I, have, I still have the book, actually, after all these years, I still have it, that actually talked about there were only 2% architects in 1970. Uh, so I was kind of puzzled back then by what that meant. But I think right now that I've been looking at the data and, and that there really is a three-pronged approach to this. And essentially, it's the pipeline, which is a lot of great people doing work on that in the United States, both NOMA with Project Pipeline and, and some other programs such as uh, Hip Hop Architecture. So we've got that kind of covered in a sense that uh, there's some tremendous work being done and, and uh, I think it's, it's getting some funding and some attention. But there, the other part of this three-legged stool, if you will, is uh, the part of making sure that the, the minorities and African-Americans who go to college finish. So if you have 5% African-Americans who are in accredited architecture programs, then hopefully there'll be 5% get that graduate. And currently, it's it's only about 20% less than that, so it's about 4%. So I think that uh, scholarships is what I've been focusing on. So I've been involved with the Architects Foundation, which is a part of the AIA, and involved in some fundraising last year on that and, and been a contributor as well. So I think that that's the part that I've been focused on, that leg of the stool, is to try to, both being an educator and also being a person who's, who's working on fundraising and scholarships. So and then the third leg of the stool is this space after graduation, which includes mentorship, particularly where is the right place to work in your first job and who should you work for? Who's you're gonna work for someone who's gonna even if they're not meant they're gonna cultivate your career. You know, they're gonna we can say mentoring, we can get there, but just cultivate, you know, is it the right place to work? Is it gonna be a learning environment? Are you gonna grow? Are you gonna thrive, you know, people going to care about you, you know, that's, that's really a big one, you know, that has to happen. And then they have to get to the exam because that experience of being in a cultivating environment is going to get them more experience. So they're going to be proficient enough to pass the exam at the rate that they expect themselves to. So that's really the third leg of the stool is, is that, and according to NCARB, it's about 2% of the, the people that pass the exam are, are actually African-Americans at this time. So those are the three legs we need to work on. If we can do all three of those things, then I think we can probably get there for increasing the number of African-Americans in the profession, but it, it takes everybody's support. And before we... Our finale for this special episode series is a conversation with Rob Miller, the director of U of A's School of Architecture. Rob has been the director of the architecture program for over 10 years, and this year will be his last in the role. Before coming to the desert, Rob had his own practice, taught at Clemson University, and was director of the Clemson Architecture Center in Charleston. Rob's academic career has had a focus on creating a closer connection between schools of architecture and the profession they hope to practice. And through this focus, he has fostered a culture of community wherever he has been, including serving as president of AIA Arizona. At the conference, Rob will be speaking with Fred Dust, author of the book Making Conversation, Seven Essential Elements of Meaningful Communication, and formerly global managing partner at the international design firm IDEO.
In my conversation with Rob, we talk about his experience building up the community at Kapla, the importance of communication and leadership, and what he hopes to leave behind. Rob, thanks so much for your time today, and thank you for joining us. I'm honored to be here, Sean. I really am. Thanks for the invitation. As director of the School of Architecture down at U of A, I think your tenure has exemplified the conference theme of Together, where you've worked to build stronger relationships between CAPLA, AIA, and the professional community at large. What does it take to be a leader in forming these relationships? And what do you feel has been most successful in creating that stronger network? Well, you know, I came into this with a certain perspective that I think led to a desire to build these relationships. From my point of view, the value of architecture school ultimately hinges on the ability of graduates to uh, be well prepared, to be passionate about architecture, and to make a real contribution when they move into the profession. In other words, I look at architecture school as being a really important and integral part of becoming a professional. And that doesn't mean, of course, as everybody knows, some, not everybody goes into the profession, but I think it's silly to think of schools of architecture in the broader perspective, if we're not preparing, training, and energizing students to be professionals, then I think we're missing the mark. When I came to the U of A, there wasn't a particularly great relationship between our school and the profession. I think there had been historically, but there was an important phase when this school needed to get updated. And in order to do that, some of the people that preceded me put less emphasis on the professional relationship and more on academic rigor and those kind of things. But when I arrived in 2010, I thought it would be really important to build this. So I think if you look over the 12 years I've been here, my work on this kind of unfolds in in phases. In the earliest years, say 2010 to 2014, I tried to show that the school was interested in building these connections, and I did that by making personal visits. In the first couple of years, I probably did 100 visits personally to go to people in their offices, and not only practitioners, but at least in the Tucson area, to uh, developers and lawyers and contractors and other people that were important in the industry. I made some visits to Phoenix, and I certainly made visits to the other schools in the state. But I first started out trying to build a personal relationship and to symbolize by traveling there that the school valued that relationship. In the next phase, the kind of middle years, let's say 2011 to 2017, I tried really hard to get notable architects practicing in Arizona to be part of the school. And I did that by inviting them in the earliest years to teach in Capstone. So or in, say, the upper-level studio like 401. So Mark Roddy from Smith Group, Eddie Jones, Wendell Burnett, Rick Joy. In the early years, those people came in and taught and made quite a contribution and established our links. And I think that helped build a... um, a culture in which younger professionals also started to come and be interested in teaching here. And that not only built the relationship, but it allowed us to update how we were teaching so that we were more practice savvy. By having more practicing architects teaching studios, we were able to more quickly update, for example, our uh, our use and understanding of BIM and some things like that, that at, at the time we were kind of behind on. 
And also in that phase, firms started contributing funds so that we could seed competitions in key studios in the school. And the great thing about having competitions, especially ones that are funded, it creates a huge amount of excitement in the school because students get to win a prize and you can elevate a whole year level as opposed to a scholarship, which is a big benefit to one or two or three students. But this way you can really make a whole class be energized. So that was really important. And then I think that the third phase, what I tried to do then was more institutional. So from 2014 to 2019, I did a lot of AI service, uh, both in Southern Arizona. I served for a while in Phoenix Metro and then at state level. So I think all those things, if you can see them strategically built from one-on-ones to firm support to a more institutional level of strengthening the ties between the School of Architecture and professionals around the state. You asked me then at the end uh, what I think has been most successful, Um, and I would probably point to a couple of things. First of all, in terms of advocacy, there was a phase as I was starting to work at the state level, which coincided with President Trump's uh, strong initiative to build a border wall. I was one of several people that worked on resolutions against the border wall, not from a political perspective, but more from a environmental and community investment perspective. It just seemed like the vast amount of resources it was gonna take to do that was not the best way to energize the public domain. And there were a lot of questions environmentally about uh, the impact of that. So all the units within AIA Arizona, so Southern Arizona and Phoenix Metro and Grand Canyon, and then the state as a whole, adopted resolutions, each in their own language against the border wall. All the AIA uh, chapters along the border, so Texas, New Mexico, California, and Arizona, we also got to do the same. And then I personally took all those to the national representatives in Arizona and made the case for that. It's not that I think that was particularly important in not getting the wall funded all the way across, nor do I necessarily think the the border situation isn't as it stands now is the right thing to do. But I thought it was important for the AIA to take a stand. And I think as a result of that, I noticed in Tucson, Southern Arizona started having events in, in public where it would take a stand on certain local projects. Uh, The most memorable for me being the multi-use tower project that Rick Joy was the uh, designer for, which hasn't been built, but which the AIA came out and took a stand for and had hearings for. And the AIA wouldn't have done that prior to this new phase. Again, that's not to give me so much credit. There's a point in time recently where everyone's been getting more engaged in the public domain. But I'm proud of the fact that AIA stood up and took a stand and created a platform where architecture and building projects themselves can be considered on their merit and that we can be seen to have supportive but also critical role in that. Secondly, I'm really proud of the expanded uh, design awards 
programs for young architects, teachers, and for community education. I did work on that in my time at the state level. I think it's really important for young architects to have the chance to get recognition long before their master's in our discipline, that when they do something really good, even if it's limited or partial, that it can get recognition just as it's important for people working in community education and teachers too, to get some recognition from the American Institute of Architects for the good work they do. And lastly, and this is not so tangible, I'd like to think that architects in the region hire and admire our graduates and therefore that they own the U of A as a top choice for getting high-performing new talent. I don't have any way of knowing if my view on that is just really skewed, but I think it's we're doing pretty well and I'm very proud of that. Well, and I think those are all great successes. What do you think could still be improved? You know, that's probably not for me to say. As you will get to later, we're going to talk about my departure. Uh, there's a search on now for the next director. And I think the next person that comes into this job will have to decide where the shortcomings are, where we should go. Is it good enough for now? How do we build upon it? You know, I'm kind of exhausted. I, I think I'm done. <laughs> Also in the spirit of the conference theme is how Kapla came back together to being in person this semester after a year plus of being online. What has it been like to have the school back together? And what do you think, what ways did the school and students and faculty grow out of the experience from the last two years? Well, it's been a, um, a diametrically opposed series of reactions. On the one hand, there's been joy and delight and appreciation. The first few weeks back, I would walk through the building and I would be stopped by students who would express their appreciation for all we had done to make it possible for them to come back and study in person. And enthusiastic appreciation is not generally something that you can ascribe to college students, but, but it was tangible and it was really exciting. At the same time, Faculty were a little bewildered. They'd been used to a year plus of uh, remote teaching. And, uh, you know, a lot of faculty have young children or they're taking care of uh, aging parents and they probably more than college age students are worried about uh, their exposure and their possibility of catching COVID. So I and then to complicate things further, we've had the Delta variant and the changing levels of protection. And so, for example, we will move to a more in-person kind of engagement. Some people will test up sick, so we'll, we'll see where and who might have been exposed. We'll pull back a little bit and ease back in. So there's this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, which has made it really different than had we been able to just come back in and, you know, fill the vessel and be ready to go. That's frankly made it a little bit difficult. Nevertheless, it's, you know, I'm sitting now in my office, I'm looking out to the floor and, you know, I can see 25 students out there. Uh, everyone has on a mask, they're working, they're talking to each other. It's pretty exciting to be back. I will say that one thing that's been revealed is how much of institutions and education in particular depend on culture, uh, street smarts, sort of learning of the herd. And having been gone so long, 
we really have lost some things that we'll have to put back in. For example, most people will be aware that we have a pretty astonishing materials lab. And to operate that big lab and do it safely and successfully, we have a whole series of layers of every student gets one in-person safety training when they come here. Every year they have an annual online refresher test. They're supposed to review material. Those tests are in the past were proctored and so on. Well, you know, sort of all that stuff went out the window. All the things that one student teaches the next student about how you use the laser lab or how you use a 3D printer and all, all that stuff's out the window and we're having to start back from scratch. So uh, I think we, we learned a lot and we did pretty well over the pandemic, but we've, we're definitely trying to recover. Shared institutional knowledge has been lost a little bit, and probably I think communication is another thing that has been uh, strained over the last year plus. It's everybody's kind of growing in, in their communication methods. And I think that's interesting to bring up because at the conference, you'll be speaking with Fred Dust, who is the author of the book, Making Conversation, Seven Essential Elements of Meaningful Communication, and formerly was the global managing partner at the international design firm IDEO. In his new book and his venture, it's all about how to make communication more meaningful and effective in the application of design thinking to crafting conversations. As someone who relies on communication and has been a great communicator throughout their career, how do you approach the art of conversation to connect with people? And what do you find you're still struggling with in communicating and perhaps could learn from Fred's work? Well, as you can imagine, talking to Fred is a little bit daunting just because of the scope of his success in his career and the, you know, I'm talking to somebody who's read the book. So first of all, I'm not that good of a communicator. I'm best when it comes to planning and delivering a message when I have time to think through something, plan it out, design graphics, and I love to work with an audience. I'm not so good when it comes to spontaneous, connected, live kinds of communications. I'm not a social media person, and that's really a serious flaw, I think, in a, in a leader today. So I see myself as being good in some domains and not so good in others. What I have to learn from Fred is, is probably tr a tremendous amount. He, in his book, he revels in having difficult conversations. He talks about committing to conversation. He talks about having conversations that matter. You need to do something besides talk. Well, first of all, that's exhausting. <laughs> in, in reading Fred's book and, and talking to him a little bit so far, you know, my first reaction is, well, I'm going to do a lot less talking. And frankly, when I reflect over the 12 years I've been in this job, that's kind of what's happened in how I've been as a department head. I listen a lot more and I talk a lot less. But his book challenges us not to avoid, but to seek out important and uncomfortable conversations. It's an interesting time to have that prompt. It's a difficult time in history for conversations and communications. Partly for people of my generation, it's easy to miss um, new social norms. It's easy to not mean something wrong, but to say something that could be taken as wrong and therefore do damage to relationships, which you don't want to do. 
it's a time in which I think most of us are less spontaneous as communicators. We're less guarded and therefore we're less vulnerable and less intimate in that. And that's the opposite of what Fred would like us to do. He'd like us to have more intimacy and more candor. And I, and I think he's right. So that for sure is something I'm looking forward to discussing with him and learning from him. I truly value trust and candor and intimacy, even when my goals differ with others. But you've got to have a way to set the stage for that. And that takes a little prep. I mean, as he says, you've got to commit to people. You've got to commit to those conversations. So I think he's taken it at a very deep and high level. And I'll be real, really interested to see what he wants to talk about from his work at IDEO. And I'm going to put myself on the table and let him do what he can with me. You know, as you had alluded to earlier, you're going to be stepping down as director of the School of Architecture at the end of this academic year. For whoever takes up the reins from you, what would you want them to know to ensure their success? And what do you hope is the legacy of your tenure? First of all, I'm not going to worry about what I know that I think they should know. In fact, I'm going to be very careful not to bring that up. I'm going to make myself available through the end of 2022 calendar year to support the new person and to transfer as much or as little knowledge as they are interested in. But I'm coming with absolutely no presumption that what I think should be part of the next person's interest or what they should do or anything like that. I'm going to be entirely devoted to that person's agenda, not to perpetuating mine. I don't think it takes a genius to see that there's no real long-range influence that happens in higher education, at least not planned influence, so that if I have a, a legacy, it's not going to be because I'm trying to make sure that it's there. It'll, it'll be an accident if it happens. Uh, what I would like it to be, if I could, would be probably four things. One, that students, as we were talking earlier, that students were extremely well prepared for practice, that they committed to the discipline that they experience and know the love and exhilaration of design and making. I think everybody that teaches, myself included, comes back to teaching because of that quality that they experienced in school. And that's why we come back and do it. And above anything, a good school transmits that passion. And if they're not doing that, it's not going to be a very good school, no matter what, what else they are doing. Secondly, my, I would hope uh, my legacy would include a connection between the academy and the profession. I hope we've enjoyed a closeness of purpose and camaraderie. I hope this has been felt. I hope that practitioners and educators, students and people working in the profession feel a bond and a connection because of how things have gone this last decade. Um, thirdly, I hope, although I know there's going to be a dissenting opinion about this, that the school has been well and transparently managed, I believe, and have tried to let faculty and students have a strong voice. We have a strong and active culture. We have a lot of participation in the school, and I hope that the, this era has been characterized by that. And probably the last thing, many people will know that I worked for at least half my career before I came here as an adjunct teacher myself. So I loved 
practice and I love school and I love doing both of those things. Because of that, I was well aware of the challenges that come to people that are trying to practice and are also trying to teach. And I worked really hard to make the academy work for them to be a place where they could find a home, they could make a meaningful contribution, they could fit in and be respected and be part of the place. Because I still and will continue to believe that practicing architects have got to own the educational system of which they're a part, that's part of their region. We, without practicing architects, schools are, just can't be as strong or as impactful as they can be with their help. So I have really tried to humanize the bureaucracy that is a big university and make a welcome place for architects to be part of that. And if any shadow of those four things survives, I'll be very happy. I feel like I'm speaking on behalf of the larger Arizona design community here, but I know we appreciate everything you've done in service for Kapla and we'll certainly miss you in that position, but know that you're not going to be too far away. So Rob, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for doing this. And uh, this has just been a delight. Thank you very much. I'll see you at the state conference. I'll be there. Me too. All right. See you later. And that's it for our special episode series for the 2021 AIA Arizona State Conference. Thank you again to Diane Jacobs, Damon Leverett, and Rob Miller for their time speaking with us. We're looking forward to hearing more from all of you at the conference. This episode is brought to you in part by AIA 10 Phoenix Metro. For more information on the 2021 AIA Arizona State Conference and to learn how to register, follow the AIA Arizona Instagram account or visit aia.org slash Arizona. To listen to our first two special episodes or any of our other episodes, you can find them at our website at tracingarchitecture.org or wherever podcasts can be found. Just search for Tracing Architecture.